Thank you for joining Mind Your Brain, a podcast of meaningful workshops to improve the quality of life for those affected by brain injury. Our goal is to give you tools and tips to help you achieve the best recovery possible. Today, we're going to learn something new about the brain injury rehabilitation research. Welcome, this is Candace Ganter, host. I am a brain injury survivor and founder of Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine and the executive director of the Mind Your Brain Nonprofit Foundation. I'm also proud to be on the board of the Brain Injury Association of Pennsylvania. My message to you today is do not give up on your recovery. We know it's a long road, but we're here to encourage you every step of the way. Today, I'm going to talk with Dr. John White. He is a physiatrist and experimental psychologist who specializes in traumatic brain injury care and research. He is the founding director of the Moss Rehabilitation Research Institute, and I would say that it's the gold standard, launched in 1992. His research has focused on assessment, long-term outcomes, and treatment interventions, particularly in severe brain injury. His research helped develop improved assessment techniques, which has led to impressive long-term recovery results and demonstrated that various treatments can enhance outcomes, and that has contributed to establishing guidelines, which I think we all agree that guidelines and scientific evidence is so desperately needed. Welcome, Dr. White. Thank you, Candace. Thank you for joining us and carving out time for us today. Recovery research is such an exciting topic. I'm gonna to dive right into it. How do you decide first? I guess the first thing is tell us a little bit about the initiation of the Moss Rehabilitation Institute and how it all started. Well, um, Moss Rehab, uh, as you probably know, has been a, a, a large and a successful rehabilitation hospital for many, many years um, and has had research going on off and on throughout that time. But uh, at about the time I came there in 1989, the board had decided that uh, research was really an important part of the rehabilitation mission. And so I was interested in a research career and they were interested in developing a research program. So it worked out very well. And um, over the course of uh, the last couple of decades, uh, we, we built uh, from the point of uh, about one and a half researchers and a couple of assistants to uh, uh, about uh, 10 full-time scientists and a staff of uh, close to 50. So uh, most of our work is in neurologic rehabilitation, some in traumatic brain injury, some in stroke and Parkinson's and other neurologic conditions. That's quite impressive. What, what inspired you? Well, I think that it was a mutual appreciation uh, and, the, and the right timing for you to start this uh, research institute. How do you decide what to study? Well, um, I think most scientists develop a particular area of interest and begin to do research in that area. And, and to be successful, you have to be relatively specialized uh, because you're competing in the grants arena with other people with very specialized expertise. Um, and then uh, often your career takes you in somewhat 
uh, different directions because one question leads to another. But in my case, I, I knew in graduate school that I was interested in the process of recovery after brain damage. I was, I, I had been interested in that in animals and also in thinking about it in humans. And, um, and then after my clinical training, I somewhat accidentally ended up working with uh, patients with traumatic brain injury as opposed to stroke or other uh, possible populations. And, uh, and my first job was in an institution that, in, that had about 80 patients at a time who were unconscious for prolonged periods of time. So it was really a, a, a unusual training experience, my first job out of, uh, out of training. And that kind of began to set my uh, interest in the direction of severe brain injury. Thank you. And, and do you remember and um, any of your patients that you had that really inspired you? Um, well, I remember individual patients, but I think what, what kind of inspired me the most or, or drove me to, to research in this area is that um, there was constant disagreement, both uh, between staff members and family members and between and among different staff members about the states of consciousness of these very severely injured patients. Uh, some doctors would say they were unconscious or in a vegetative state. Their families would often say, I think, I think he, he uh, responded to my voice or you know, squeezed my hand. Um, and, and it was very frustrating to me that I couldn't uh, objectively figure out what their state of consciousness was, and I, I had no way to measure whether it was changing or improving over time. And I guess actually the one case that that really started me on that uh, measurement journey was that I was asked by a law firm to review uh, the case of a patient who had been in a rehab hospital for many months, um, and and the um, the lawyer. Uh, thought that the patient didn't need uh, continued rehab at that level. And I read the weekly reports for months and months, and almost every weekly report described the patient as a little bit better than the week before, uh, visually tracking a little bit more consistently or following commands a little bit more. Um, and yet when I read the summary at the end of 10 months, it sounded just like the summary at the beginning. And I thought, how can a person make even a small amount of progress every week? And it doesn't add up to anything at the end of many months. And what I realized was that patients fluctuate. They do a good thing this week that they didn't do last week, but they don't do a good thing this week that they did do last week. And if you just write narrative notes and say, this happened, that happened, it's really hard to understand over many months whether things are changing. And, and so that really drove me to looking for a tool set that would help end the confusion and controversy about really what a patient's state of consciousness was and whether it was changing over time. Yes, indeed. And, and so tell us, I, uh, and I believe, and you can, you can probably confirm or deny this, that there aren't many studies that are being done because it's so controversial and so difficult and, and uh, perhaps it's difficult to conduct research on a brain injury uh, because of the varieties of injuries that people have. Well, you're right about that. It's a very challenging area of research and it's challenging for both scientific and practical reasons. Um, 
when I had that early experience with a, a great many patients who were unconscious, that was in a kind of institution that no longer exists. We were in the fee-for-service healthcare environment, and it was a for-profit nursing home that kept patients in intensive rehab for months as long as it as they could get paid. And, and there were certainly some ethical problems with that, but what it meant was that those patients had long-term access to intensive services. Um, Soon after my experience there, the insurance companies realized they were spending a lot of money on un unproven uh, interventions and they, the pendulum swung very sharply in the other direction to the point where uh, many insurance companies said that unless you were pretty conscious and participatory, you were not appropriate candidate for rehabilitation at all. You should go straight to a nursing home from an acute care hospital. Um, uh, so. So I didn't have the opportunity to, uh, to pursue that research with that volume ever again. And that's really one of the things that in the United States in particular has made research in this patient population very challenging because within a few weeks of injury, they're scattered in countless non-specialized nursing homes and family residences. And it's very hard to enroll them in any kind of long-term studies. Uh, they're disconnected from the academic research enterprise. Whereas we have had more progress coming out of Europe during that period of time where there are uh, you know, universal healthcare systems that care for everyone and have integrated data systems and so on and so forth. So, so one of the big challenges to do this research here is the healthcare system that's not serving the patient population. But then, as you also uh, alluded to, uh, there are so many variations in the locations and severity of the brain damage itself that there's not going to be any one treatment that benefits the entire population. And I'm sure that's frustrating for any of our rehabilitation service workers that um, they don't have that trajectory. They don't have the outcome already mapped out for each new patient. Indeed, and, and a particular problem for those with the most severe brain injuries is that in the early period, the days and couple of weeks after injury, when many of the biggest decisions are being made, uh, whether to continue aggressive care, even whether to donate organs and, and, and uh, mm -hmm. decide that care is futile, are being made at a time when, scientifically speaking, we can't yet accurately predict the outcome. So people are making life and death decisions in a period where the outcome could be terrible or it could still be quite good. And that's, of course, very, uh, very worrisome. Mm -hmm. And and so I, I appreciate the motivation that you have. I think that's uh, such, such an exciting time to be involved in it, even though you, we struggle with a continuum of care. But I think that uh, that's something that will continue to improve over over course of time. But tell us, what are the myths about brain injury recovery that you've come across? Well, certainly I learned in medical school, I went to medical school quite a long time ago, but I learned in medical school, as I think many of my colleagues did, that when the brain was damaged, there was a period of uh, rapid recovery that lasted for a few months and then it pretty much reached a plateau and you that was what you got forever mm -hmm. um, and that became a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you don't bother to study people longer you know you just you know how they turned out and end of story but um, 
we started doing, uh, I, I knew in the early, uh, well, in the, in, in the early 90s that we didn't have any data that hardly that lasted beyond six months or a year in, in patients with the most severe brain injuries. And we started out through the traumatic brain injury model system research network to uh, study longer term outcomes. We, we have data on a, a small number of about 400 patients who entered rehab in an unconscious state. And we have a follow-up uh, as long as 10 years post. And what we uh, learned was that of the patients who make it to rehab, now that's, that's not a random sample, but of the patients who make it to rehab and are still unconscious when they enter, uh, about a quarter of them will live independently in within five years, and about a quarter of them will uh, will have the potential to work. Now that's a minority, right? So you could certainly say, well, you know, seventy-five or eighty percent won't do that well. Mm -hmm. uh, but in most medical illnesses, we don't think that a twenty percent or twenty-five percent possibility of success is futile. Right. Um, so uh, the other thing that we saw was that there was meaningful change for at least several years post-injury. We could measure increasing numbers of patients becoming independent at between two and five years at least and small amounts of change even after five years. And that's encouraging. Even that 25% for a caregiver or a family member, that's pretty exciting. Uh, statistic, and you certainly don't want to discount that as being right. a successful outcome. Right. What is the most successful research you've conducted? Where do you see that it's the most exciting point in your career so far? Well, I suppose in a traditional sense, in terms of one study, um, uh, it would be the um, the uh, clinical trial of a drug called amantadine hydrochloride that uh, Joseph Giacino, uh, who's at Harvard Spalding, and I led uh, a number of years ago. Um, as you may know, in severe brain injury, there really have been no drugs that are proven to improve recovery. Um, and because it's such a desperate situation, in the United States at least, um, practicing physicians deal with the lack of evidence by trying kind of anything they can. Um, and so there's a great deal of what we call off-label prescribing of maybe this drug will help, maybe that drug will help, it helped this other patient population or something like that. Problem is it's very difficult even after you give the drug to a patient to tell whether it helped because the trajectory of their recovery is unpredictable. So if they do really well, was that because of the drug or maybe they would have done really well no matter what. So for years, I and all my colleagues tried to figure out what worked without doing randomized controlled trials, placebo controlled trials, because we thought who will consent to be in, in the placebo group? It, it's such a, such a challenging uh, request to make. Um, but year after year, we couldn't figure out what worked and everybody was using their favorite drug and nobody knew what worked. So finally, we organized a research network uh, of a number of facilities that had small but significant populations of very severe, uh, severely brain injured 
patients. And we did a lot of planning and meeting with families to discuss the ethics, but we did a placebo controlled trial where half the group got placebo and half the group got amantadine. And we showed that the group that got amantadine recovered consciousness more rapidly. Um, and that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So that's a highly prestigious and visible um, result. The frustrating thing is that we weren't able to determine whether the drug affects your long-term outcome or whether it just gets you there a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we would like to have answered that question, but we knew because of this uh, sort of dire situation that even if families would consent to be in a control group for four, four weeks, which is what was required in our study, to ask them to stay in that group for a year, whether they were doing well or poorly, everybody would bail and everybody would be taking other drugs before the end of the year. And we would end up with, a, again, an uh, unclear answer. So we, we settled for a clear answer to a less than perfect question rather than no answer to a more important question. Well, that's congratulations. That's that is exciting. Thanks. And I was wondering if we could explore just for a minute this model system and probably tell our listeners what that means for them in, in terms yes. of research. Um, well, there's um, one of the federal funding agencies, not the National Institutes of Health, which people are probably most familiar with, but uh, an institute called the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research has for, I guess, about 25 years now, funded um, a, a set of uh, research programs in, in three areas, spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, and severe burns. Um, and for those three different patient populations, every five years, they put out a competition for uh, hospitals that have specialized uh, rehabilitation programs for one of those patient populations to, to write a grant to belong to this net research network. Um, and then um, the research network, the, the um, organizations that are funded uh, collect uh, standardized data on patients that they admit with those diagnoses and they commit to contacting them at one, two, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, and forever uh, years thereafter and doing uh, long-term outcome research. So there's a, a whole set of uh, data collected primarily by interview once the patient's out of the hospital that are collected forever by all of the participating sites. And then you also receive funding to do local projects that you would design individually. And so uh, Moss Rehab has had a traumatic brain injury model system for more than 20 years. Um, and so we've studied uh, more than a thousand patients and done a lot of individual studies as well as the, uh, the common data studies. Uh, but it's that, that common data infrastructure that allowed us to to do the long-term outcome study that I just mentioned with patients who are unconscious. And Dr. White, could you tell us how many sites, how many are participating in this program? Uh, at the, it's changed a little bit over time. It started actually with only, I think, four or five sites. But uh, for the last couple of funding cycles, it's been 16 sites around the, uh, around the country, uh, two in Pennsylvania, Pitt, University of 
uh, actually, I'm, I take that back. University of Pittsburgh was funded. They're not currently funded in the present funding cycle. So I think we're, we're the only uh, site in Pennsylvania currently, but there are sites all around the country. Indeed. And so there's a bank of information, a bank of data that uh, would lend itself. So how many participants do you think across this model system are in that data bank to study? Well, I should have looked that up before this because it's an easy question to answer, but it's, it's in excess of 10,000 patients oh. who've been studied over time. Oh, okay. And the other thing I'll mention in case there are any researchers uh, who are listening to this is that that's a public data resource as well. So it is possible for uh, external investigators who aren't aren't part of the model system to request access to the data to do analyses of interest to them. That's, that's great news, that's great news. Uh, Dr. Wyken, what do you hope to discover? What's your dream? Uh, is there something out there? Is there a big question out there that you'd like to have answered in your research? Um, well, I, th I feel pretty good about the, the progress we've made with the severe brain injury population that I mentioned, because uh, as, as you said in the introduction, we, we now have reached the point where there's a, a published uh, clinical guideline that that is based on a lot of the research that we and others have done over the last couple of decades and and I hope will really have an impact on access for this patient population uh, to to the rehabilitation services they need um, so that's kind of a, a not a particular study but kind of the incremental impact that I'm I'm happy about what I'm doing, you know, now I'm semi-retired, and so I'm not running my own lab um, at the present time. And what I'm working on most actively at the present time is actually not specific to brain injury, but to uh, rehabilitation more broadly. The fact that we don't have any way to define our treatments once we get beyond medications and surgical interventions, but we use names like physical therapy, an hour of physical therapy, as though that meant some specific thing that took place, or, or even more specifically, we say uh, the patient had, you know, three weeks of cognitive retraining. But even though that tells us that the therapist was concerned about their cognitive function, it tells us nothing at all about the actual ingredients of the treatment. And so we've been, uh, that's been a huge obstacle to research uh, if you want to study any treatment other than a pill, um, because we don't know whether I'm studying the same treatment you're studying and whether this treatment is the same as that treatment or different. We have no tools to even have that conversation. So we have recently developed a, uh, a system um, which we hope will be rehabilitation wide that, uh, that tells you how to define non-pharmacologic treatments in ways that they can be objectively studied and disseminated to other people and clinicians can be trained to do them right and all the things that are so difficult right now. That's, that's a huge project, I'm sure. It is. And I'm, I'm hoping that someday someone can define what executive function is because as, a, because as a brain injury survivor, and I was told after rehabilitation, I had executive function, which I was so proud of, but really what it meant is I could tie my shoes. And so I think that, that that would be worthy of a study as well of how those terms are used. Well, you're right. That's a, that's a short phrase for a big and messy uh, complex combination of, of abilities that we're a long way from fully understanding. Yes, thanks. Uh, so thank you so much, Dr. White, for sharing with us your passion for brain injury research and 
we look forward to many more amazing discoveries by you. And thanks. Quite impressive. And as we know, there's millions that are still struggling. And the listeners of our podcast could help us by providing this information to their community. You can be a partner with us and follow us on Instagram, learn about the mission of Mind Your Brain, and you'll learn more about Moss Rehabilitation as well, and our upcoming recovery workshops on our website. So please invest in your recovery. And I wish to offer you all a virtual hug and tell you, you are not invisible to us.